Welcome to the As Growers podcast with your hosts, Tia Moskalenko and Melissa Hutzel. On this episode, we're discussing the cannabis industry. The legal cannabis industry is a multi-billion dollar market, and although humans have used cannabis itself for thousands of years, from ancient China to today, the growth of the legal cannabis industry is vastly extending our knowledge of the plant and how to use it consciously. We've undoubtedly entered into a new age of discovery about the plant and people using it, and for consumers, it can be hard to keep up. Today, our guests, Mo Smith and Josiah Hesse, are here to speak with us about the industry and provide insight into it. Mo and Josiah, please introduce yourselves. Yeah, hi, um, my name is Mo Smith. I'm a, I'm a RN. I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for about 18 years, and I'm transitioning into the cannabis space to help uh, cannabis consumers make informed decisions about matters affecting their personal health and i provide them information about cannabis so that they can actively sort of partner with a health provider or a health coach or a cannabis nurse to make the best decisions regarding cannabis use um, for their own personalized sense of wellness how about yourself josiah yeah uh, my name is josiah hesse i'm a journalist based out of denver colorado um been a freelance journalist for about uh, 15 years now, reporting on a variety of topics, but cannabis has kind of been at the center of my career, uh, partly because I'm a cannabis user and it's uh, a passion of mine, but also being in Denver, Colorado, I've sort of seen the whole timeline, I guess not the entire timeline, you have to go back to California for that, but of legalization in Colorado uh, and then spreading throughout the nation. So I've had opportunities to report on the subject from a variety of different vantage points. I mean, that's the great thing about reporting on cannabis is you can look at the culture, you can look at the science, you can look at the government policies. Uh, there's just the economics of it, the social equity. Uh, there's just so much wrapped up in this subject. And so it's been very exciting to me uh, to be at the forefront of uh, what is the uh, a historical uh, shift in drug policy. Um, and I just released a book last fall uh, called Runner's High that's sort of about the intersection of athletics and cannabis, particularly in endurance athletics. And that also became a passion of mine over the last five years or so. And uh, you'll have to forgive me if I uh, sound a little bit nasally. I'm getting over a bit of a head cold at the moment. So sort of uh, sound like I'm speaking through a tunnel. That's totally fine. Hope you look better soon. I have actually this almost the same situation today, so I un I it's, understand and hear your pain. <laughs> yeah, it seems like just about everyone I know is either getting sick or getting over getting sick. <laughs> That's that story. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's totally fine, no worries. And uh, maybe you could share your first experience with cannabis. When was it and uh, how you actually came up with the idea to try it? Sure. Um well, I grew up in a working class town in North Iowa, so cannabis was kind of part of the culture there, uh, as were a lot of other, in my opinion, more harmful substances. Uh, but it was something that was uh, around. Um, I grew up in somewhat of a, a chaste religious uh, culture, so um, very much immersed in the war on drugs and a lot of the propaganda around that. Uh, and it was quite a 
uh, sea change for me, a perspective shift when I eventually did try cannabis uh, and realized that a lot of the propaganda that I'd been uh, filled with throughout my whole life just didn't match up with the reality that I was experiencing for myself yeah. and what I was observing in other people. Uh, it was the kind of typical peer pressure. Uh, someone else was doing it at a party and really wanted me to try it. I was hesitant, but went through with it. I don't think it's a, a good way to be introduced to cannabis. I don't think anyone, especially a young person, should feel pressured. Uh, I was about 20 at the time, which is a little older than most people that I know who've, you know, tr who tried cannabis for the first time. But it was a game changer for me. Uh, I was somebody who was in a very dark place at that time. I'd flunked out of high school. I had no direction in life. Uh, people assume I flunked out of high school because I was stoned all the time, but I'd never tried it. <laughs> and uh, after that, I, I developed a, a really intense passion for learning, uh, for ambition. Uh, it's kind of the opposite of uh, what a lot of us are indoctrinated with about cannabis. Um, I was just uh, a much happier more passionate, um, engaged person uh, after I had that experience. And there were some psychedelics that also uh, contributed to that. But, uh, and years later, uh, it got me into endurance running uh, as it did a whole number of other people that I spoke with for my book. So it's had a enormously beneficial impact on my life. Uh, not to say that it always does for everyone or mm -hmm. any kind of use of cannabis is always a good thing. Uh, I'm always hesitant to say it's like 100% good 100% of the time, um, but it did have a um, monumentally uh, beneficial impact on my life. I totally understand uh, understand you when you speak about uh, athletic stuff and using cannabis. Uh, me, myself, I was um, running for a couple of years and uh, that was cannabis was a game changer for me because you can relax easily and uh, on the next day you actually can feel your legs and your arms uh, because <laughs> prior to that that was really difficult to relax you're like uh, I don't know it's not like your body it's like the stone but not the muscles so yeah mm. uh, that's that's the game changer I think uh, Mo what about you? Sure. Yeah, I was um, introduced to cannabis as well as a teen. Um, <clears throat> you know, we we have to remember that back then, you know, during that sort of just say no era of Nancy Reagan, um, you know, if you tell a teenager just don't do it or, you know, don't ask why, just don't do it, that a lot, a lot of teenagers will take that as an invitation to explore yeah, what you're exactly. telling them not to do right Absolutely. so um the other thing you have to remember about that time period is that the cannabis that we were introduced to back in the you know 70s 80s for me was you know about three percent to ten percent thc so um you know it's a highly different story from what's going on with our cannabis products today in teens so that's one thing we need to be aware of when we all tell our story about our teenage cannabis you know use um mm -hmm. but you know of course in retrospect too um uh, there's two things in retrospect that I didn't realize. And one of them was that I was medicating for like, um, for anxiety and I was medicating for 
depression and I, I was medicating for uh, PTSD and I wouldn't learn that until many, many years later until I started exploring the research surrounding cannabis. But the other thing is um, kind of ironically for this um, podcast is that I was an athlete uh, too as well. I played soccer, like soccer was my life, one of my first <laughs> loves and Cool. You know, uh, I was pretty good at it, you know, like above average or whatever. And um, I did use cannabis and I do think it's a performance enhancing drug, you know. <laughs> so that's just, you know, uh, one thing to think about is like it does. It can provide an extra edge in terms of that fluidity that you were talking about, Tia, mm -hmm. and that sort of like you know, going into yourself that uh, Josiah was talking about and just like finding, fine tuning your own, you know, personal experience um, for that run or for, you know, for that game. And, and um, you know, cause that's what cannabis does, right? For some people, it turns us inward and to sort of understand how our body's working. And, and mm -hmm. you know, once you understand how the body does work, you can fine tune it. <laughs> That's right. Maybe you have some pieces of advice how to choose uh, the proper dispensary. So everything is in order there. And uh, maybe you have some advices. Yeah, this is something that I'm actually pretty passionate about and um, uh, hesitant to endorse any specific dispensary. But it's something that I think is really lacking in the industry. And that's uh, the education level of bud tenders and how they're hired, how they're paid, what sort of experience level they need to have, uh, what sort of passion they need to have beyond their own personal use uh, of cannabis, but uh, the industry as a whole, the science as a whole, because these really should be the gatekeepers for this product. Mm -hmm. uh, people should be able to walk into a dispensary and not have to know about terpenes uh, and, you know, flavonoids and even cannabinoids, they should be able to walk in there and say, I'm going to use, or I'm looking to use cannabis for this activity. I want to use it for sleep. I want to use it for pain relief. I want to use it for exercise. I want to use it for creative stimulation. And then the bud tender should have the knowledge of their products, of their strains to say, this is something you should try out. I know what you're looking for. And or these are a couple of options for you. And here's how you should approach this, you know, take a small dose. I mean, that's the biggest problems that we run into in this industry is bud tenders basically being cashiers and just selling mm -hmm. people products without them knowing anything about that. Or the most important thing, how much to take. You know, I've mm -hmm. been living and reporting on Denver uh, and cannabis for years, and we had this massive problem, as a lot of other states do when they first legalize and they get edibles on the market. Mm -hmm. There's no regulation into how uh, potent they should be, and there's no uh, education from bud tenders as to how much they should be taking. So we had people flooding the ERs here uh, because they had just taken way too much, and they were, you know, they thought they were dying. They're having a panic attack, and the doctors that I've spoken with are like, well, we reassure them that they're not dying. We keep them hydrated. It's not a life threatening situation, but it is a very unpleasant experience. And it's something that taints the industry and taints these products because people walk away thinking, well, that's a cannabis experience. And I didn't enjoy that very much. I'm not going to do that again. And they warn other people, you know, stay away from those edibles. They're way too strong. They're way too crazy. And 
Maureen Dowd had a whole column about this when she came to Denver, I think in 2014. Mm-hmm. She took 10 times the recommended dosage of oh, uh, edibles and <laughs> she just lost her mind in this hotel room and then writes a whole column about it in the New York Times. And this is something that could be avoided if bud tenders are educated and they're communicating with their customers. Um, so you can find a lot of information, a lot of reviews of dispensaries uh, online. Um, and you know, look for something where people are talking about how impressed they were with the knowledge of the bud tenders and, and go into these dispensaries knowing what you're looking for. You don't have to know about the products, you don't have to know about the science, but know what you want to get out of it so you can articulate that to the bud tender and they can say, you know what, I think I know the product that's right for you. Uh, and then maybe try out a couple of other dispensaries if you like. Just to compare, right. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks. That's interesting. Yes, it's so fascinating. I think you made really great points. I've noticed personally here in California, the same issues like the the bud tenders don't know much about the products that they're selling. And I think that's really frustrating, especially I don't know about you guys, but I have older people in my family who are really interested in learning more about, you know, how CBD and different forms of cannabis products can help them. And they're so intimidated to go into a dispensary. But also I'm a little bit scared for them that when they go in, they have no sort of context on which products would be best for them. And they don't really have too many people to ask. Mm -hmm. So Mo, in terms of cannabis education, how do you help um, people learn more about the products they're choosing? Are there certain points perhaps that you want people, patients to keep in mind? Yeah. Wow. You guys touched on a lot of important points and, you know, uh, (laughs) Josiah was spot on with a lot of the problems. Uh, The bug tenders are definitely one of the most important players in the cannabis industry. And yet the cannabis industry doesn't really understand that. Right. Because, um, you know, these are the people they're like nurses in a way in a hospital. These are the people who have the most contact with customers who, you know, can have the most impact um, for that customer to be a return, repeat loyal customer or actually, you know, not go back to that dispensary. And I have to say most of my dispensary experiences have been one where I didn't return. I wasn't a repeat customer. So I think the best bud tender would have a little bit of um, kind of like a little bit of knowledge about how the body works. You don't really need a whole, whole lot of knowledge about how the body works. But, you know, cannabis works in our body because we have certain receptors to receive them. Um, And so, you know, it's that's a highly unusual situation. that's a situation that we need to embrace, right? Because here's this product that can do so much for us. And yet we're just not educating the people about how to avoid these situations of too much THC. And then conversely, only trying CBD and being like, well, that didn't do a thing for me. And so now you have two sets of cannabis um, users who aren't going to try cannabis again. One, because they tried CBD and it did nothing for them. And one, they, you know, they took, you know, that sort of crazy edible and had a panic attack and ended up in the ER. So um, basically what I started doing, I was doing a lot of research. I was doing research starting in 2018 when I was 
sort of first on turned on to the fact that we ourselves make our own inner cannabis molecules. And that's why we have receptors for can, you know, for cannabinoids plant, you know, which is not unusual. We have receptors for opioids too, but um, the thing of the, the big difference is that when you're using, um, you know, cannabinoids, you're like, you know, I guess sort of the, I know I'm a little long winded here, but it seems like I keep saying fine tuning, but, you know, cannabinoids, because of their receptor uh, affinity and binding properties can fine tune quite a bit of our bodily functions and our biological actions in our bodies. And, and people just need to understand that. So start low and go slow is actually the best advice that anyone could could give a person who tries cannabis and just to be patient with it, maybe keep a journal. Um, you, you know, like, like I said, there's so many products um, on the market. You do need to have like some understanding of the onset of action for a tincture and, you know, the onset of action for smoking is going to be pretty much right away. So if you need relief right away, then then um, smoking is going to be helpful, but it's not going to be helpful over the long term because it it, the, it it sort of resolves after a while. So then that's where you start um, sort of stacking your cannabinoid uh, products, you know, and um, I could go into that a little bit, too, but. I like to I like to overlap my cannabinoids, like you know, ratio, using ratios, topicals, tinctures, smoking for a breakthrough only or recreation only, that kind of thing. I don't know. Did I answer the question? I kind of went on a. I was a little tangential there. <laughs> no, I think you did a great job. Thank you so much. And I think it's so interesting. You you mentioned the endocannabinoid system. And in my experience, I think a lot of consumers and non-consumers uh, may be surprised to know that there's an entire system in our body dedicated to cannabinoids. Do you, do you find the same thing? Yeah. And, you know, I was studying cannabis for a really, really long time before uh, kind of the light bulb went off in my head in that our endocannabinoid system is a, uh, was evident in primitive animals at about sort of the 600 million year mark. And cannabis only showed up on the planet at about the 34 million year mark. Um, so we have the endocannabinoid system was definitely here first um, for our endogenous, um, you know, ligands for those receptor molecules. And, and, and so that was kind of one of my first aha moments, like, wait a minute, like the, the key player here isn't the external cannabis, the key player is our internal endocannabinoid system. And then I think I went through the evolution uh, of understanding that these receptors are not just in our brain. Um, and we're talking specifically the cannabinoids uh, receptor one and cannabinoids receptor two, um, that they're throughout our entire body and cannabinoids also have an affinity with a secondary set of receptors that um, are, uh, you know, also have binding affinity, but are not strictly cannabinoid receptors like our serotonin receptors and our GABA receptors and our glutamate receptors. And that's kind of one of, 
a really important aspect of cannabinoid medicine, besides for the fact that these receptors are throughout our entire body, um, that they basically modulate our classical neurotransmitter system. So all our neurotransmitters are how we perceive the world, right? If we have the right amount of dopamine, then, then we're happy and motivated to, to take action. If we have the right amount of serotonin, we don't feel nauseous or we don't um, feel depressed, you know? So these classical neurotransmitters can actually like cannabis has the master key to them as well as sort of the master key to um, our body's um, biological stabilization through homeostasis. So, I mean, we just can't, won't be able to deny too much longer that it's, it's such an important medicine and it's going to revolutionize uh, it's going to revolutionize medicine. If, if, you know, if, if we continue in this direction and it looks like we are because Biden just passed that research and to do human research studies on cannabis is like a miracle at this time. We have cell studies and we have rodent studies and we have a few, you know, um, sort of what they call anecdotal studies because they're not the gold <laughs> standard, but they're showing us so much about the uh, potential for this medicine, which is not to say we can't get in trouble with it too, because um, like, Josiah was saying there there are some problems and you know we need to get both aspects of this the word out that you probably should use a guide and that could be anyone who has done the studying and the research because a lot of people again like Josiah said in the beginning this is this cannabis encapsulates you know social equity it, it um it encapsulates so many other factors. You could do the science, you could do the athletics, you can, you know, talk about the, you know, the creative flow that you get into when you um, use cannabis, because that's very much true. That's why they discovered like why, what runner's high is. It's like getting into a flow with a rush of anandamide, our um, our internal cannabis, like our basically our internal THC. So mm -hmm. there's so many aspects to it that you know it's it's just obviously going to change the world, and it has already. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I see that every couple of months. So I would say. Uh, more and more states are getting cannabis legalized. And I think uh, during the last two years, it drastically changed. So I think people start realizing that the cannabis uh, plant is really important and it can help. So even the high uh, uh, standing politicians, they say that, yeah, it helps. So we need to legalize it even in some states where it wasn't possible at all at the very beginning. But yeah, I think people are doing the great job. Yeah, and speaking how far we've come just in the past decade alone, Josiah, my next question is for you. You've covered the cannabis industry for a while now. So how do you think the media coverage around the plant has changed over time? Of course, especially as we look at it before and after states like Colorado and California welcomed their own legal industries. Yeah, it's an excellent question uh, and something I encountered when I first started as a journalist. I really had 
very little uh, credibility and uh, experience, education in journalism. And it was a very serendipitous set of uh, circumstances that led me to reporting on cannabis because so many other journalists were hesitant to uh, attach their name to the subject to have that be their beat as a journalist uh, because they thought it would ruin their credibility. They wouldn't be taken seriously. I had no credibility to defend. So it was uh, something that I was happy to jump into. And I knew more about it than most of the other journalists uh, at that time. I mean, we're talking like 2006, 2007. And if you look at any sort of mainstream media reports on uh, cannabis or legalization or the science of it, there was always this hesitancy from the anchors to say that they knew what they were talking about. They would actually end these segments with, but I don't know that much about it. Like that was a common phrase. It's like nice they say this, 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 and then at the end be like, but I don't really know anything about it. And you would never see that in any other field of journalism. Nobody would report on healthcare or the war in Iraq and give you all this information and then conclude with, but I don't really know that much about it. It's like, well, we're <laughs> listening to you because you do, you're supposed to know something about it. That's what you're doing here. That's your job. And then as things uh, progressed, as more and more states started legalizing, as we saw the sky didn't fall in Colorado and California and Oregon after legalization, you know, it wasn't just uh, fires in the streets and some kind of post-apocalyptic warfare. It was just commerce. I mean, there were problems, but it wasn't like astronomical, uh, the impact that it was having. I mean, if anything, uh, the economy of Denver just exploded after legalization. Um, that's when you started to see more and more journalists have uh, a nuanced uh, approach to this subject. It's not the binary of like, you're either 100% against it or you're 100% for it. Uh, you could start having more nuanced opinions on it and interview people that had differing opinions, but they didn't fall on one side of that line. Um, and it brought new opportunities for a journalist like me to be able to report with more information. I think people, at least with CBD, they know more about cannabinoids as a concept that there are these different cannabinoids in the plants. I think people are just beginning to understand about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, it's beginning to be taught more in medical schools. I think in 2013, there was a survey that said like 9% of medical schools were teaching the endocannabinoid system, which was insane. Huh. Uh, but as more and more people know about this, it's become part of the lexicon. It's become uh, sort of a household topic beyond just hippies and rappers uh, and drug cartels, um, it, that's when you started to see a whole lot of shifts in the media approach uh, and the way people were consuming that media. Right. I'm surprised to learn that even 9% of people in medical school are learning about it. I thought it was closer to zero than that, so <laughs> I have to admit. Well, that was 2013. Uh, it has changed quite a bit. I mean, there's been more and more research around it. Uh, Gregory Gerdeman has been one of the leading researchers on this, and his paper has been cited. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the figures, but uh, just this astronomical amount. You see, like, all of the science building on his work and the work of others uh, so that it's just become something that you cannot ignore you know, be like trying to ignore the endocrine system, you know, as a uh, a medical student, like you just can't 
not look at this. It, it, as you pointed out, Mo, it impacts uh, almost all of our bodily functions and uh, so much of our mental uh, health. Uh, it's just something that um, it's it's like a Swiss army knife of medicine. Oh, I love that analogy, a Swiss army knife of medicine. So Mo, in terms of legalization, how do you think cannabis has changed medicine and caretaking? Do you find that cannabis as medicine is being taken more seriously by the medical community? I would say yes and no. Um, we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, considering what Josiah was saying about um, about it not being taught in med schools and nursing schools, um, we you know. But once you once I start talking to nurses and I explain a few situations with anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology, right? They know how to read research. So they um, begin to understand there's a little bit more to this than, than the hippies and the rappers and the drug cartels as well. Um, however, on the cannabis, on the nursing um, exam, the NCLEX exam to get state board, your state nursing license, the only cannabis questions are about um, use and abuse. They're still, we're still looking at use and abuse in the medical community. I work at the, I work at a hospital and when it is a, I work at a VA hospital and the veterans are very good about, and I think this is what patients need to do. Patients need to explain to their doctors or their providers or their nurses or have the freedom to do this, to say that they are using cannabinoid therapeutics um, to enhance their wellness. And the more that we sort of, this is going to influence doctors and nurses to learn about it a little bit more. But when I read charts, um, I'm still seeing that the recommendation is across the board to stop cannabis use in, in patients. Like they almost always have to write patient was recommended to curtail cannabis use, even if they have prostate cancer or even if they have a um, PTSD. Like, so I don't know, um, you know, so yes, we've come a long way, but yeah, we still have a long way to go. And I think getting nurses um, to the table is gonna be one of the big game changers because of how much impact nurses have on patient care. Mm -hmm. How do you think people can improve the cannabis industry and uh, maybe how we can help sharing the accurate information about the plant itself? Because, uh, it's 21st century and a lot of people do not realize still that it's not a drug. And uh, maybe there are some ways how to persuade these people of its benefits. Yeah, I mean, I think more science, more research, uh, more journalists taking this seriously uh, and their editors and their publishers. Um, and it just sort of, and, and as legalization spreads, uh, mm -hmm. that's been, I think, one of the biggest uh, impacts on how people view this plant and how 
they feel about their, you know, kids or their grandparents using it or them using it themselves. Uh, you know, if you remember back in 2014, when legalization was first hitting Colorado, there were people like Chris Christie that were saying, like, you know, uh, we don't want New Jersey to look like downtown Denver. I, I don't know what he was referring to about <laughs> Interesting. You know, Denver, because it was just, uh, you know, things were looking amazing uh, for us at that time. But I think people do have this assumption that, uh, you know, more people using cannabis is going to lead to uh, a low, higher unemployment level, uh, less ambition among the people, uh, obesity, you know, there's this uh, myth that yeah, people who use cannabis don't exercise or that they eat terrible food. Uh, and I think, you know, as we've seen with a lot of social changes uh, with race, with sexuality, with gender, that there's a lot of assumptions that we have about groups of people or certain activities uh, that lead to detrimental, undesirable outcomes. And that's just not proving to be the case with this as it didn't prove to be the case with gay marriage, uh, you know, or mm. women having the right to vote or own property or have bank accounts. Like the, it seems <laughs> crazy now looking back at, you know, the beliefs that we had about these things, but that's the way I think we're gonna look back on cannabis that, you know, it was just kind of this overblown hysteria. Not that there aren't concerns that need to be addressed. Uh, you know, we can look at the problematic usage of cannabis or mm -hmm. problematic uses of the industry uh, but it's something that I think we need to shed a lot of the war on drugs, uh, hysteria and myths, and then we'll be able to, you know, have a bit more clarity on this issue and see what the good things and the bad things are that we need to navigate. Yeah, right. People always argue less about alcohol and, uh, what kind of person you might become if you over dosing with alcohol but uh still a lot of people think that uh, cannabis is more harmful i was like okay can you prove it because it's always so funny to listen that people who really love drinking wine and uh vodka or i don't know all the spirits they say like oh my god you're smoking you're smoking cannabis seriously and they look at you like i don't know what you're doing uh so yeah we need to work on that as well because Still, people think that if you want to relax, you just need to grab a bottle of wine. But I think more healthier way is to share a joint with your friend and uh, tell what's going on and what's on your heart, but not go and drink. Yeah, and just to jump on that point, when mm -hmm. we see someone uh, drinking a glass of wine, we don't assume that they're doing tequila shots for breakfast, <laughs> you know. Uh, and if we see someone eating an ice cream cone, we don't assume that they have like an eating disorder and yeah. they're going to become obese and their life is going to be ruined by this. And, you know, th those people do exist. You know, the people who are taking the shot of tequila first thing in the morning are out there, but we don't make these uh, assumptions about anyone who's using alcohol must be at that, you know, desperate uh, level of addiction. And I think mm -hmm. we need to, you know, reform our view of people who use cannabis that the vast majority of people are using it, you know, responsibly and uh, uh, in small doses. Yeah, I agree here. So when we look at how humans have used cannabis over time, we see that it's really always been used as a medicine or to enhance certain experiences. But in more recent history, our use of cannabis, especially to treat ailments, has become more vast. 
what are some of the surprising uses for cannabis that you've discovered so far? So this is a question is for both of you. Um, I could jump in there just real quick to, you know, do a little plug for my book, Runner's High. Uh, mm -hmm. It was something that was surprising for me when I first discovered, you know, first got into exercise because of cannabis use. And then slowly as a journalist discovered that I was far from the only person who was doing this. In fact, that it was uh, the vast majority of professional athletes were using cannabis in some form before, during, or after their training or competition. And that really flew in the face of a lot of conventional ideas uh, about people who use cannabis, but then also learning about the evolutionary history of the endocannabinoid system. And as Mo pointed out, anandamide is the kind of culprit of the runner's high, you know, setting cannabis aside that we have this endogenous cannabinoid in us that makes us happy after about 30 minutes of uh, cardio at about 70% heart rate. There's sort of a targeted little window in there but that cannabis can be a kind of a catalyst for that experience. It can make it come on faster and more in intensely. THC can induce the production of anandamide. So this is something that, you know, there's a researcher out of Boulder, Colorado, who was actually looking into the obesity epidemic and was worried that uh, um, more cannabis use among Coloradans would increase our amount of obesity. And then as she did the research, she found out it was the exact opposite. And now so much of her career is wrapped up in showing how cannabis can be used some, as a, a weapon against the obesity epidemic, and it can actually make people more active and that we mm -hmm. should be uh, doing more research around this and actually encouraging uh, responsible use of cannabis among some people who are having a difficult time enjoying exercise. So, I mean, that's just one little avenue of how this could have a beneficial impact on society. But I think it's someone it's it's something that surprises a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, um, you know, I'll, I'll just touch on this uh, point pretty uh, briefly about the this, you know, endogenous cannabinoid system being in primitive life forms back in, in the sort of uh, 600 million years ago. And what they discovered is that we, that even sea squirts have an endocannabinoid system. And I was talking about this with a, you know, an interesting person in the cannabis industry. And he said, you mean to tell me that the, you know, a sea squirt is just basically, um, so the end, and I, I have not researched this, but my uh, sense is that, or my theory is that when it's time for that sea squirt to take in nutrients, it opens. And when it's time to um, stop taking in nutrients, then it closes. And so even from that sort of early, um, you know, primitive life form, we do find that the endocannabinoid system is very much wrapped up, um, very integral, very wrapped up into our um, metabolism and how we metabolize food, how we seek and um, seek out food. Like if anyone's ever had the kind of munchies that where they actually ended up like pretty far away from their home because they absolutely had to get like hippie dust pop popcorn and a certain ice cream that was only at one store. So, you know, the THC will make you seek out food like that and to take in calories. Um, but like uh, Josiah was seeing, we're finding that it's not increasing 
the uh, obesity, or, you know, the problem, the huge problem of the obesity epidemic in America that has a lot more to do with processed food than the munchies. And so the reason why cannabis users are not only um, not only because they may be expending more calorie um, energy through exercise after use, but they're also, you know, the liver is um, digesting fats better because of THC and other cannabinoids at certain receptors. And there's um, even a lot of implication that this is going to be an anti-diabetic um, uh, um, solution. Um, cannabinoid therapeutics. You know, we're looking at THCV as being uh, integral to the glucose insulin homeostasis and also CBG has a lot to do with insulin production and homeostasis between glucose and um, energy expenditure and um, insulin resistance and that kind of thing. So for me, that was one of the more surprising um, aspects of it. It's like we have CB1 receptors on our beta cells in our pancreas. And, and so very, very, very much involved in glucose insulin homeostasis. And then I guess the other thing I found out um, doing research for a conference talk um, at the American Cannabis Nurses Association last year, was that our endocannabinoids, uh, anandamide actually turns on the stress response and 2-AG turns it off. And that was, again, like the original stress response, fight or flight, was necessary for our survival. So the endocannabinoid system was the cue. Like, dude, there is a shadow, that shadow just crossed your, you know, your back and that could be a tiger. So you best run. And that was the signal or a cue by anandamide. And then, so the fight flight response in our primitive selves was limited. It was self-limiting, um, but we don't have that self-limiting turn off cue anymore. We are just constantly in fight flight due to our modern society and modern living. And so that's, you know, that's that relaxation that Tia was talking about. It's like, we just need to give our body the cue to turn it off, like no more stress response because that cortisol and then that insulin resistance and and, you know, that's what's going to be packing on the pounds. It's the processed food and the stress that we're going through now. It has really very little to do with cannabis. And cannabis is probably the solution to our metabolic uh, syndrome that we're all suffering with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I say one quick thing on that? Uh, I, I love everything you're saying, Mo. Just, uh, you know, I'm so fascinated by that uh, in, uh, inducing of cortisol uh, by anandamide. It's something that I encounter a lot as a endurance runner. And one of the ways that I combat that experience is uh, keeping a low heart rate. And that's something that has a, an evolutionary uh, uh, resonance because so much of our runner's high and our ability to run long distances wasn't through sprinting, you know, and catching a gazelle mm -hmm. in like five minutes, mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of predators mm -hmm. would do. It's actually... Uh, hours or even days of uh, slowly, you know, keeping pace with an antelope and wearing it down. And then they would like you know, mm -hmm. hit it with a rock or something, especially on a hot mm -hmm. day. Well, mm -hmm. that has a translation in the modern uh, experience of using cannabis in running uh, in that if you keep your heart rate low around 70%, you know, it's still, you're still very stimulated, but you're not in a sprinting mode. 
that will keep the cortisol levels down and keep the anandamide from inducing that flight or fight response and keep you in a more uh, sort of calm uh, state that you can, you know, sustain over a period of time that will, you know, uh, help burn calories and uh, keep your uh, insulin levels functioning well. Um, so that's just something I throw out there is like running or any kind of endurance exercise, especially with cannabis is not about like, you know, go hard, go as, you know, as hard as you can, as fast as you can, uh, you know, keeping things at like a consistent, steady stimulation is where it's at emotionally and for the health benefits. Mm -hmm. Agree. 100%. Amazing. I've heard a story from my friend uh, who smoked a joint and then ran a mar marathon. I was like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just did an ultra marathon last year, uh, 50K uh, through the mountains. Uh, and oh. I took uh, edibles throughout that whole experience. It's, mm -hmm. it's very common with the ultra marathon runners uh, that they would have uh, a vape pen with them or edibles. Uh, I've heard people say 90% of ultra marathon runners are Whoa. using cannabis in some form. Wow. I didn't know that. That's interesting. It is interesting. And so why do you, why are edibles your delivery method of choice, especially when it comes to running? Well, I run for long distances and edibles uh, have a more sort of steady release of cannabinoids than smoking a joint does. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say, and there's research to back this up, that uh, uh, cannabis, uh, uh, smoked cannabis uh, actually dilates uh, the lungs, uh, or, uh, those uh, little uh, receptors. Um, but for me, it's just too much of a spike and a dip uh and i my lungs feel heavy uh after i smoke and also there's a, a body high that comes with uh edibles uh it is sort of a different experience i always say it's like a cousin of smoking cannabis it's it's in the same family but it's uh somewhat of a different uh <laughs> substance you know it passes through the liver and turns into 11 hydroxy thc and i think the, anecdotally, people will tell you like they get more of a body high when they use edibles versus smoking. And I think uh, that's why edibles are so popular with people who are terminally ill or have chronic pain. Uh, and so it's something that will just uh, sort of induce the or complement the runner's high uh, on a physiological level on like the nervous system, the euphoria of it uh, in a way that smoking doesn't for me. Mm -hmm. So edibles can definitely be alluring and daunting for consumers. Um, you know, after all, it can be hard to resist choosing a gummy or chocolate or something like an infused popcorn or coffee. Um, but edibles can also be really intense. As you mentioned, the reporter's experience who, who first came to Denver a few years ago. But as someone who uses edibles often, what considerations do you recommend, um, especially for those interested in using it before getting active? So for example, are there certain dosages that you find work best for you? For me, yes. Uh, for everyone, it's different. Uh, the endocannabinoid system has variations for every person's body type. Uh, for me, I've stuck with between 10 to 20 milligrams of THC. Uh, and for a lot of people, especially when I put the book out, they were shocked at that number because I know people that will take 600 milligrams of THC. Uh, the, the guy who started the 420 games, he took like 300 uh, milligrams and swam from San Francisco to Alcatraz. 
Uh, and that's, uh, you know, great for him. I, I, I don't have any judgment on anyone's uh, volume of use. I think it can be problematic on a case by case basis, but uh, everyone's different. For me, I've, I've been doing this for about 10 years and I stick between 10 and 20 milligrams because it, it, for me, if I get too intoxicated, uh, I can, you know, you have to think a lot when you're uh, running a race uh, and you're at those aid stations. What do I need? I need, you know, uh, the, those salt tablets. I need, you know, water. I need to pop my blisters. I need to change my socks. Like you have to think about a lot of things because it might be so many miles to the next aid station. Mm -hmm. uh, but then also your coordination, you're running on mountain trails, you know, there's rocks, there's tree roots, there's holes, mm -hmm. you're going downhill, you're going uphill, uh, you got to like, be a little sharp. And so I find that there's a window uh, of like, you know, too little or too much uh, that I try and stay in the middle of. Yeah, I think it's also the matter of every person, each and every person, how they react on edibles and on joints. Uh, I mean, the flower itself, because uh, my boyfriend, he can eat one CBD pill and he's like, oh, I'm relaxed and uh, I can eat five. And I'm like, OK, so where where should it be <laughs> and when? So, yeah, on my personal experience, it also depends on the person who uses it. Mo's advice about starting low and go slow and mm -hmm. then also keeping a journal is uh, great, for, especially if somebody's new to this. Like you don't need to, you know, take what your friend is taking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, take no, you two don't. milligrams, you know, break it in half uh, and wait. You know, people get so impatient with this stuff and, <laughs> you know, wait like 45 minutes at least uh, until it takes effect. And if you want to take more, you can take more, but you can't take less after you've already taken more. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, in terms of dosing, I mean, that's that's a sticky wicket, right? Um, dosing is a problem, as you uh, both mentioned, that, you know, the endocannabinoid system is under genetic control. So every, my endocannabinoid system is different from Josiah's, which is different from Tia's, which is different from Mel's. Um, um, there may be sort of classifications of endocannabinoid systems where, you know, certain people, no matter how much THC they use, they're just going to fall asleep or certain people cannot metabolize THC. So they're always going to feel anxious. Um, so this is another aspect of, of research that we need to learn. But um, ideally, uh, whenever you're coaching somebody uh, to, who's new to cannabis, um, you know, you kind of start them at a sub therapeutic, especially THC, start at sort of a sub therapeutic dose, which is going to be between one, um, one milligram and 2.5 milligrams. Um, you know, so this is just toning your endocannabinoid system. This is one way to tone it, um, teach it that, okay, we have, we're introducing a new substance here you know, so get your body used to it at this low dose and then sort of, you know, go up by one milligram um, every, maybe every other day, um, you know, to see like where your dose is. Because, mm -hmm. you know, Josiah found his dose between, I think he said 10, uh, 10 milligrams. But that probably took a lot of trial and error. And it does take a lot of trial and error. And the dosing is wildly different. I had a computation where I was 
working with a uh, 91-year-old woman. She was on hospice and um, she was like less than 100 pounds. And the bud tender had given her uh, 19 milligrams of THC. And I was like, what? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, but this is the problem with dosing being so enigmatic is that that was a good dose for her because she had metastatic. Yeah, she had metastatic (laughs) cancer. And so my sense was that the cancer like probably had CB1 receptors on it and that all the THC was going to fighting the cancer and it wasn't going towards, you know, the CB1 receptors in the brain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, dosing is very, very tricky. And, um, you know, the the best thing we can do is teach people to start subtherapeutic and to slowly, slowly find their their dose very methodically, like uh, Josiah was saying, that nice sort of balance uh, between too much and too little. Um, and, you know, most people don't do that. So that's why the experimentation is, is you know, quote unquote, like a wild, can be a wild ride. I mean, I've gone on many wild rides that I didn't anticipate that I was going to. <laughs> I've experienced. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I think if you contrast to everything that Mo was just saying about the, the care and the caution going into this journey uh, with yeah. how most people consume cannabis, especially for the first time, for, I, you hear the same story over and over again. I was at a party. I had a lot to drink. Someone was <laughs> passing around a blunt. I took two hits. The room started spinning. I threw up. I was anxious. I had a panic attack. I had to leave. That was horrible. I'm never doing that again. Well, that's uh-huh. step one. Do not combine it with alcohol. Yeah. Don't right. do it at a party. You know, uh-huh. do it when you're at home and you have no responsibilities and you're comfortable and take it small amount. And yeah, all of that stuff. Like people just never or rarely uh, actually take that advice. Yeah. They yeah. think about it right after the first experience and then it's like, oh, I shouldn't do I shouldn't done that and that. And then you're actually lying in the bed and uh you wish you were dead because you're feeling that uh awful. So yeah, I agree here on this. Yeah. Apparently you can get up to 20 milligrams of THC in some of these high potency products, you know, with one hit. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I believe it. And to your point earlier, Mo, as you said, um, our, the THC products today, just cannabis flower alone, the THC percentage has skyrocketed in the past few decades. Yeah. So it's about and consumers should know that going in and also maybe educate themselves a little bit about different combinations of cannabinoids, wh- whether that's, you know, broad spectrum, full spectrum, or um, just isolates. I'm a, I am such a whole plant enthusiast because we don't know, we really, the research, we have good research, it's getting better, it's only going to get stronger now that um, Biden passed that law. However, um, this this plant makes certain cannabinoids and certain terpenes um, for certain reasons. And I think that it's if I was going to trust anything or anyone, I would trust the plant over the product. Um, and by that, I would mean like, please start with whole plant cannabis. It's kind of the best thing for our industry. 
if we all get the word out that whole plant, um, you know, full like a, a nice balanced cannabinoid profile is just going to be a better product um, base for any product that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of flower, um, just try to get as many cannabinoids in you. They're all very important and it's an ensemble piece, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So on that note, Mo, I would actually like to get your perspective on this. Uh, something I've been doing for the last couple of years is uh, decarboxylating my own cannabis. Uh, there are a lot of products you can get now that are sort of like these little ovens that will have smart uh-huh. sensors that will know exactly how long and at what temperature to cook your cannabis. And then I'll put that directly into say a smoothie or a energy bar of some kind. And that just seems so different than what's going on in the industry where they're using a lot of concentrates, just pulling out the THC or the CBD and then putting that into edibles. And I think mm-hmm. that does disrupt what you're talking about with this uh, whole plant medicine. Uh, and I would think that uh, I haven't seen a lot of research on this, but I would think that, you know, doing it with a decarboxylator and eating the plant whole, it doesn't taste very good always. You want to mix it with something uh, uh, most of the time. But I would think that that would preserve a lot of the multifaceted benefits of cannabis. Yeah, 100%. That's amazing. I love that. I love that process. That's that's actually really nice. And another Another simple way to um, to get the whole plant in you, like for the elderly or people who don't who just say, I just do not want to take I don't want to feel impaired. I I don't ever want to feel that feeling. And so um, what you can do is just take a nice whole flower, sun grown, regenerative farm, you know, responsible agricultural product and you can just throw it in hot water. And that's a great, that's a very great way for an elderly person to get um, some, some cannabinoids in them. They'll, they're going to be getting THCA and TH and CBDA and whatever, like ensemble cannabinoids are Mm going to go with that bud. But, you know, they're also going to get enough, you know, especially for the elderly, we are seeing in mouse models that just a tiny bit of THC is very, very neuroprotective um, Mm. for our for our old people. Yeah. So they're not going to feel a thing basically on that tea, but that's that's a very profound way to do it. Right. And so, you know, I mean, this is this is a, something, again, that people need to understand that it's it's kind, it's not rocket science, but we have complicated it with the products that are out there. Like even now I'll come home from a dispensary and I'll look at the back of a package and I'll be like, why didn't I read this in the store? You know, <laughs> that's like I don't eat corn syrup. So why would I have corn syrup in my in my cannabis? You know, oh, yeah. I, I've been a non-corn syrup user for 20 years and I'll get home and I'll look at a gummy and it'll have corn syrup in it. And I'll like, did it again. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of looking to the future of the cannabis industry, are there any predictions or anything that you guys might have? Uh, I would say that, or I would hope that cannabis industry starts having more uh, targeted products for specific needs, uh, that it's not just, you know, high THC. It's not just like, I want to get messed up on this. Let's party. Uh, mm-hmm. but we'll see. And that is what dominates the industry, unfortunately. Uh, but we'll see more 
nuance in what the bud tenders know, uh, but then also what the customers know. And we'll have more products that are geared specific uh, for specific needs, you know, for mm -hmm. pain relief, for sleep, for stimulation, whatever it might be. And that we're going to see, uh, you know, a whole lot more variety of products. Good point. Yeah, I'd like to see that too, that reliable, um, consistent product that is, you know, that is repeatable for, you know, many people so that, that the trial and error period is a little bit less. I, I would love to see one industry and I don't think that's been going to happen. You know, I think I wish there was like a bridge that the medical people could walk across and that, uh, cannabis industry product makers, high THC product makers, like the money makers and, you know, the wheelers and dealers, you know, I wish there was a bridge they can walk across, meet in the middle and have like a re some really good discussions about where, you know, how we can make this industry more um, broad for the type of people who actually need it, your diabetics and your metabolic syndrome and your heart, you know, hypertension. And uh, although saying heart is a little bit tricky with cannabis because, you know, but we do have cardiac, you know, we do have cannabinoid receptors in our heart and, um, yeah, so just sort of a meeting at the minds, I would hope, uh, between the medical and the, the recreational industry and, and, and balance balance that out so that, that those two aspects are, are not so far away from each other. Because really, ideally, in an ideal world, don't we all want wellness for everyone, you know, or am I just too, like, is that just too emo or whatever? Um, <laughs> I think a lot of us in this conversation do, but I think a lot of people in the industry are really just looking at profits and their bottom line and don't really care about this uh, plant or the people who are using it. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that a lot of uh, movie stars, they start their cannabis business and then they close in six months or in 12 months. And I was actually curious back to to a few years ago when I just started uh, my job at S Growers, I was like, I have no idea why it's not popular, but because they don't really care. They really care about money and they do not really care about people and consumers. So that's really cool. unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, uh, I would say goodbye. Josiah, Mo, thank you so much for this conversation today. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I really uh, have something to think about for uh, about the future of the industry and many more things. Thank you for your advices. I did as well. It's a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thanks, Mel. Thanks to you. Learn more about Josiah Hesse's work, including his coverage of sex, religion, and cannabis, and his latest book, Runner's High. Visit josiahesse.com. That's J-O-S-I-A-H-H-E-S-S-E.com. And for those interested in learning more about cannabis's medicine, the endocannabinoid system, cannabinoid receptors, and more, visit smithmed at smythmed.com. And as always, for all things cannabis, stay tuned to Ask Growers.